0: The following audio is from the Grove Church Snohomish campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Well, good morning, Grove Church Snohomish. I thought it would be uh, really appropriate to start off today's message, actually by, uh, just there you are, thanking Andrew. Um, but for he, he shared a lot of the history, uh, but for those of you who don't know, I moved up here when I was about 17. Um, I was really a punk. A lot of people in the, in the audience here can attest to that. And so I joined the youth leadership team. Um, Andrew believed in me, gave me opportunities. Up until very recently, he was my boss at the Grove Church in Marysville until he came over here uh, to pastor this awesome church. And so uh, just publicly, man, I want to say I love you. Uh, I respect you so much. Thank you so much for investing in me and believing in me, uh, even when I probably didn't deserve it. Um, and then as far as Grove Church and homage goes, it's been awesome. Uh I work at the Grove Church Marysville, so I do all the videos and stuff like that. Um and it's been so cool to be able, even from a distance, to be able to see the stuff that God is doing and the stuff that God is going to continue to do. So you guys are doing incredible. Um, and it really is an honor and it really is a privilege to be able to speak with you here today. So One of my passions is really helping the Bible to come alive to people. Like Andrew said, I'm a huge Bible nerd. I love reading about it. I love studying it. I love telling people more about it. And so... Uh, When Andrew asked me if I would be willing to come speak uh, here at the Grove Church, I said, obviously, that would be incredible. Um, And then when he asked me if I'd be willing to speak in the series of messages where we're kind of uh, verse-by-verse dissecting the book of Colossians, uh, my excitement multiplied by about 10, because this is kind of my wheelhouse. This is what I love to do. And today, uh, we're going to continue our book study through the book of Colossians. The main thing that we need to keep in mind while we're studying the book is that the theme of the book or the central idea is the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. Or in other words, it's this idea that in everything that we believe and everything that we do, as Christians, Christ is at the center of it and everything else kind of comes from that center. And when we're reading in chapter two, Paul is really going to begin to get to the why behind the what, or in other words, the reason that he's writing this letter. So, Starting it off in verse 1, chapter 2, he says this, "'For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you "'and for those at Laodicea,' which is a neighboring town by Colossae, "'and for all those who have not seen me face to face, "'that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, "'to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding "'and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, "'in whom are hidden all treasures and wisdom and knowledge.'" I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So there's a few things that we can glean from this section of Colossians Uh, First, just like Pastor Andrew alluded to, uh, Paul never actually meets the people of the church of Colossae. And as best we can tell from what uh, scholars believe is that Epaphras at some point heard Paul preach the gospel, his life was changed, he believed instantly he was saved, and because of his passion for what had happened, he traveled back to his home in Colossae, he told more people there the good news, and eventually a church rose up, and so in a way, the church of Colossae is kind of like a grandchild to Paul, like even though uh, he didn't directly preach to them, they are hearing the gospel that he preached, and what we see is that Paul has an extreme affection for this church, even though he's never actually seen them or met them in person. And that's what makes this letter a little bit sad because tragically what's happening here is they were beginning to fall victim to one of the great temptations of mankind, which is adding anything to Christ for salvation. And the rest of chapter 2 when we look at the book of Colossians is going to be Paul dissecting these different heresies, these different lies that the people of the church were beginning to believe. But before we get into that, I want to say I love what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And the idea that Paul is getting at is that we here, we as the church, the people of Colossae, they have heard the gospel and it's time for them to walk in Jesus. Or in other words, it's time for us to go from knowing the gospel right like we know the story we know that Jesus lived the perfect sinless life we could never live we know he died the death that we deserve to die we know that uh, because of that sacrifice and the resurrection we can now have a relationship with him but it's time for us to go from just knowing it to actually living like we believed it was true it's time for us to go from just knowing about Christ to walking in him In this next section, which is where we're going to spend uh, most of the message today, Paul actually begins to hit on what the particular heresies were. So in verse 8, he says, "...see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily." And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision that was made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were raised in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, forgiven us all of our trespasses. And pay attention to this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul hints at two heresies, two lies that are beginning to take hold at the church of Colossae. And so we're going to take them one by one. Uh, the first heresy that Paul talks about is this worship of elemental spirits that's going on. And so if, if you study some ancient religion, what you'll see is that most of the time when you look at it, uh, all of the different gods that they worshipped are connected to elemental spirits. And so in Persia, we have this big, long history of actually directly worshipping elemental spirits. So you're directly directly worshipping water or whatever it would be. Um, in Greek mythology, a lot of us know they have this big history of a pantheon of gods and all of the gods are connected to individual elements. And so if you're a sailor, you need the sea to be good. You're going to worship Poseidon because he controls the sea. Um, If you need the sun to be awesome, you're going to worship Apollo. If you want to get drunk a lot, you're going to worship the God of wine. Like there's all these different uh, gods that the Greeks are worshiping. And what Paul is getting at is that it's time for them to give that up. And the heresy that they're believing is that Jesus is something to add on to what they already believe. And so they have this long history, they have this long tradition of doing sinful things. And again, the worship of anything other than God would be sinful. And instead of giving those things up and simply believing and trusting in God, what they're doing is they're trying to add God on top. They're trying to add Jesus on top of what they're already doing. Or to put it another way, they view Jesus, they view the work of Christ as a nice seasoning to go over a meal. They don't view it as the meal itself. And today, maybe we don't struggle with, with wanting to worship Zeus. If you do, we can, we can pray for you afterwards. That's cool. But what I would, what I would encourage you guys to think about is, is not just dismiss this as, this, oh, that was a problem for them back in Colossae. But here's what Paul's getting at. What are the things in our lives that we know God would be asking us to give up that we're not willing to? And for so many of these Christians, what their, their idea was, you know, Jesus sounds great. I don't really want to change the way I live. I don't want to give up anything that I'm doing that's wrong. But I just want to add Jesus on top of the way I'm already living. And Paul's very, he's very strong against that. The next heresy that Paul addresses, I think, is actually even more dangerous than the first. And the reason for that is this. Um, In our hearts, we know when something is sinful. And we know when it's time to give it up. Even if we don't want to, we have an awareness of it. The second heresy that Paul addresses is, is not about getting rid of bad things, but rather... It's about not viewing neutral or good things as being above God. Again, the theme of the whole book is the supremacy of Christ. And so what there is in Colossae, there's a group of Christians who maybe had already given up their worship of elemental spirits. In fact, they're fully sold out for God. They love Jesus. They love the Lord. They've heard the gospel. They believe. And then another group of Christians are telling them that in addition to believing in what Christ has already done, what they also have to do is become ethnically and culturally Jewish. And the reason for this is because for hundreds and thousands of years, the people of God, the only people group who worshiped the Lord, were the Jewish people. And now all of a sudden, because of the work of Christ, that gets flipped on its head. And I think there's a, there's a great parable. Pastor Ryan brought it up when he spoke on this. Um, the parable of the master in the vineyard. And if you guys haven't heard it, it goes like this. Uh, Jesus tells it. And there's a master. He has a vineyard. And he needs it to be harvested. And so he goes into town. And he hires a group of men to come in and harvest his field all day. And he agrees to pay them a fair wage, which back in that day was a denarius. And so the men come in they go to the vineyard, they begin harvesting, and a few hours later, it becomes obvious to the master that he's going to need more people to harvest. And so he goes back into town, and he hires another group of men, and he agrees to pay them a fair wage. A few hours later, again, he repeats it, he goes into town, he hires a group of men, and then finally, with one hour left in the day, he goes back into town, he hires another group of men, and he asks them to harvest, even just for the last hour of the day. And when the harvest is completed, the master calls the first group of men to him and he gives each of them as he promised a denarius for their work. And then he calls the second group of men and he gives each of them the exact same wage of one denarius for their work. And on and on this goes until he gets to the final group of men that he hired for just the last day, the last hour of the day, and he gives them the same. He gives them a denarius. He gives them the same exact wage that he gives the men who had been working all day. And the first men come forward and they're outraged by how the master is. They say, you know, how is it that they deserve the same wage that we got? We've been working all day and they've only been working for the last hour. And the master replies that it's his money and he has the right to do with it what he will. And I think one of, one of the big mistakes that we made, that we make a lot of times when we read the parables of Jesus is we try and explain away the tension that Jesus actually wants us to feel. Now, is it, is it fair that the master gives the same wage to the men who had been working all day as far as and the men who had only been working an hour. Yeah, technically it's fair. But we would all be outraged if we were in that situation. To bring it into a modern context, imagine if you were at a company for 10, 20 years and you'd work your way up. Your boss thought you were an incredible employee. You got promotions. You got raises. And then one day you find out that someone with no experience gets hired at an entry-level position and that they are paying him more than you. You'd be outraged. And that's the emotion that Jesus wants us to feel. Jesus wants us to feel that according to the rules of the way the world works, that is not fair. And the hard truth that the workers were having to understand is that their wage did not depend on the quantity of their work. It did not depend even on the quality of their work, but rather it depended on the generosity of the master. And the hard truth that we as Christians have to learn is that our salvation, our justification is not based off of the quantity or how long we've been following Christ. It's not based off of even what we do, but rather it's based off of the generosity of God and what Christ has already done. And it's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard thing to realize that the person who is born into a Christian home, accepts Christ at an early age, lives an upstanding moral life, and dies surrounded by people they love, receives the same justification as the person who comes to Christ on death row. Now, one of those lives is much better to live than the other, and you'll find a lot more fulfillment. But as far as our actual salvation goes... It's based off of what Christ has done. It's not based off of of what we have done. This truth destroys our narrative. And to go back in, in verse 13, I love what Paul says. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgotten, forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This speaks... This speaks to our constant addiction to trying to save ourselves. When I was a kid, uh, one of my best friends' name was Weston, and so I'd go over to his house all the time because uh, the Andersons have a killer backyard. And I would go into the tree houses, and we would spend hours because, you know, when I was young, Lord of the Rings had just come out. And we would defend Helm's Deep from the orcs that were charging against us, right? I just loved doing it. I would pretend to be Gimli for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and maybe that, maybe that's a little bit nerdy, but but here's what I'm getting at. We love The narrative of the Savior. All of the movies, and maybe it's just me, but all the movies I watch have a moment in them where someone's backed up against the wall and there's absolutely no hope. And the villain is going to come in. They're going to destroy. All hope is going to be lost. And at the last moment, someone comes in and saves the day. And we want to be the Savior. We look up to those heroes. Think of all the people we learn about in school. Think about all the people we read about. We read about heroes. We read about saviors. And it's a hard pill for us to swallow that when it comes to our spiritual life, we are not the saviors. We're the people being saved. Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses. It does not get more hopeless than dead. In other words, there was no hope. You were backed up against the wall. It was about to go south. And then Jesus saved you. And then Jesus saved us. And I would encourage us as we're we're leaving this, this section, think about what are the things that we try to add on to Jesus so that we can feel like we're saving ourselves. You know, Back in Paul's day, it was circumcision and dietary laws, which, to be honest, as an adult, those sound like huge bummers to get into late in life. But, <laughs> but think about today. What are the things that we try to add on? And it's even good things, right? Like I've said, I love the Bible. I love reading the Bible, but I need to always be checking myself. Am I reading the Bible because I love God and I want to learn more about him? Or am I reading the Bible because I want to check it off my list so I can turn back around to God and say like, look, I'm a good Christian. Am I praying because I I, I want to commune with God because I want to have a relationship with him? Or am I praying because I want to, you know, help other people see how awesome of a Christian I am? And even when I'm preaching, it's, it's a constant tension of... Am I preaching because I want to exercise the gifts God has given me and I want to share more about him? Or am I preaching because I want to look really cool to all of you? The the danger of adding things on top of Christ is they're not always bad things. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're neutral things. But they're things that when we take them out of their rightful place and we put them as ultimate, it distorts our view of who Jesus is. That's why the theme of Colossians over and over again is the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. And this may be hard to hear, but one of the most loving things that God can do for us is reveal the depths of our sin. When we understand what we were saved out of, we would never think that we did that ourselves. And a lot of times what our, what our prayer should be is, is, God, open up the layers and let me see my sin for what it truly is. Let me see my depravity for what it truly is. Not so that we can feel hopeless, but so that when we look back, we would understand that I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't save myself. And all of a sudden, all of the, the little things that in our hearts we do because we want to show God that we deserve the salvation he's given us, the They all seem really silly. In this next passage, and this is our our final one today, Paul begins to talk about what should we do with this. So if we have this truth, if we have the truth that our salvation depends solely on the saving work of Christ, well, okay, so what does that mean? So in verse 16, he starts and he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." And one of the things that Paul does in this section that I think is, is, is really interesting is he uses this imagery from something that a lot of the educated Greeks of the time would have been familiar with, and that's the, the allegory of Plato's cave. And if you haven't read Plato before, I mean, you're not, you're not missing out on much, but what, what it says is, imagine with me, if you will, uh, that there's a man who lives his entire life inside of a cave. And he's facing away from the entrance. So if you're positioning it, the sun is here, the man is here. He's only facing this way and he sees the wall of the cave. And he's lived his entire life seeing only shadows of what the sun produces. So in other words, he's never seen a flower, but he's seen the shadows of a flower. He's never seen a person, but he's seen the shadows of people. He's never seen the sun, but he sees the shadows that the sun produces. And the danger that Paul is warning us about in this passage is the danger of falling in love with the shadows. And and what are shadows? Shadows are meant to point us towards something greater. Like for instance, when I'm walking down in Seattle and I see the shadow of a great building, I don't think to myself, well, that's nifty. And then I keep walking. Like No, I turn around and I look at the building that the shadow is coming. When you're sitting down and you see the shadow of a loved one coming around the corner and your heart begins to feel with joy, it's not because you're thinking to yourself, that's a nice outline. It's because you understand that the shadow is connected to someone that you love. And what's happening in this day with Paul is people are so in love with the things that are meant to point us back to God that they forget about God himself. It's so easy for us to fall, to get caught up in tradition that we forget about revelation. And I think a really easy example of this is in Christmas, right? It's coming up. Love me some Christmas. Uh, In our house, the decorations go up early. Uh, We listen to Christmas music on the way here uh, because my wife is a Christmas fiend. And so as soon as like, basically October starts and it's Christmas time for her. But but listen, I've adjusted. I've learned, I've learned to love Christmas um, almost, almost as much as she does. But when you listen to, to Christmas music or when you, when you pay attention just to kind of what, what's happening, there's this really disturbing push in culture to want the beauty of a thing without the substance that's behind it. And I always get super annoyed when I listen to songs. Because if you listen to like modern Christmas carols, what, what are they about? They're about like, snow is awesome, snow is so fun, sing about snow, sing about bells and presents, right? There's this, there's this beautiful thing that is Christmas. And the reason it's beautiful is because we're celebrating the fact that this is the, this is the beginning of our redemption, this is the start. of of God's plan, or at least not the start, but it's when God actually comes down in the flesh. It's when the bodily embodiment of God comes down into earth. That's something that's worth celebrating. I love the old Christmas carols because what are they always about? They're always tying it back in to the work of Christ, and that is why we are married. That's why we're cheerful around Christmas. But what's happened is we love the lights. We love Santa. We love presents. We love the season itself, and we've simply forgotten about why it's beautiful in the first place. We want the beauty of a thing without the substance of the thing that's behind it. And many people in Paul's day had fallen in love with traditions. And they forgot about what it pointed to. That's why when Paul says, don't don't worry about the shadows. Worry about what's behind them. It's almost as if we're in that cave and we've lived our entire lives with shadows and Jesus is right behind us and he's lovingly asking us to turn around, but we don't want to because we're, we're afraid we're going to lose the shadow. And what Paul is, is telling the church at Colossae is see the shadows for what they are. Let them do what they're intended to do. Let them point you towards Christ we we'll to conclude here in a little bit if I was gonna just write down a summary of what all of chapter 2 of Colossians is about this is, this is what I wrote down our salvation is based solely on the saving work of Jesus Christ not based on our own work Because of the supremacy of Jesus' work, we are not bound to anything other than him for salvation. And finally, we need to make sure that our affections do not terminate on the shadows, but rather the reality behind the shadows. And I would would encourage all of us, don't, don't waste our lives chasing after things which promise fulfillment, but they never will. I always... I always find that it's interesting that the areas of culture where you see the most success, oftentimes what you see also is the highest levels of depression. Because what you have is you have people who who have made it to the mountaintop, and then they realize there's there's nothing here. So you're chasing after shadows. Marriage is a beautiful shadow. I love being married. It's incredible. And And, and what it is is it's a shadow that points me To the deeper love that God has for me. Church is amazing. I love being a part of church. I love the church. And church is a shadow of a deeper community that one day we will get to experience. Even simple things like fall colors. For this, I don't know why this year I'm really sappy. Um, I've been like driving and I've been, yeah, I'm married. Is that what happens? (laughs) I have been crying more. It's been weird. But yeah, I'll just be driving and I'll be seeing just the different colors of fall on the mountains on crisp days and I'll just be taken aback by the beauty of it and and lovingly what God reminds me is that it's a shadow of the creation that we will get to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. Even something as simple, like I said, um, we listen to Christmas music really often in in the car and uh, a few, I think it was a few months ago we were listening to uh, Oh Come All You Faithful, the the Pentatonix version because Pentatonix is awesome. But, amen. (laughs) That's good. Um, And, you know, at first I'm kind of, like, grooving. It's really catchy. It's awesome. And then, like, in the middle of the song, uh, I just started to cry. And it was really weird um, because, you know, it's go tell them. Not go tell. It's it's, oh, come all you faithful. Um, But what was happening there is God was lovingly peeling back layers for a little bit. And he allowed me to go from just enjoying the shadow for what it was to all of a sudden realize like what this song is doing is it's reminding me that there's a God who loves me. There's a God who forgives me. That there's a God who I find my purpose in. Why wouldn't you want everyone to come and enjoy that? Enjoy the shadows for what they are. Because God has purchased our salvation, we have freedom in Christ to enjoy God's creation. Because Jesus alone has purchased our salvation, we have freedom in Christ to enjoy God's creation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the words that you have given us in this book. I thank you so much for the reminder that our salvation is based solely off of what you have done, and it's not based off of what we would do. And I pray tonight for all of us that we would, we would always remember that your work is what saved us. It's not our own work. I pray that we would always remember to love and appreciate the shadows, but to love and appreciate them for what they are. And I pray that you would help us to have the wisdom to allow those things to point us towards the greater reality of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Snohomish Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.